Hello and welcome to another episode of the 1020 podcast. I'm very excited today as are my viewers and are those who cannot see uh, this recording because they're listening to it. I am, as it appears, talking to a green chicken. Yet what is behind this avatar is a team of fantastic uh, individuals, economists, particularly experts on commodity markets. And not only do they look fantastic on camera, they also run an incredible Substack. Uh, I can only recommend it to everybody, the Doomberg Substack. The name, it's a little bit of a wordplay on Bloomberg, so just replace the, the, the B and the L with the D, and, and you'll find the Substack. It is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, currently $300 per year, but I promise you, uh, you will not regret it. Uh, I have already, I'm, I shamefully admit, I have already on, on occasion bragged with knowledge which I got from the Substack, and I know I have an advantage over those who are too stingy to uh, pay the, the steel <laughs> price of $300. So thank you so much, uh, Mr. Chicken, Mr. Doomberg, for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you, Ralph, and thank you for the... Um enthusiastic endorsement for those that are even stingier you can sign up for our monthly fee of uh, just thirty dollars but we offer the um the discount for those who are willing to pay for the full year in advance which of course helps us avoid uh, churn which is the the bane of all content creators existence uh, but it's been fascinating ron i appreciate the invitation and, I, and i'm looking forward to a a robust discussion with you today there is something that uh, is also in your email signature and that you uh, you and your team kind of constantly emphasize, and maybe you can explore this a little bit with me, which is uh, the very straightforward statement that energy is life. And this strikes me as something mm -hmm. that we tend to forget in today's uh, present tense obsessed society, where I think many of the achievements of civilization we take for granted. Could you maybe explore a little bit on what you mean with this sentence? You bet. So um, by, by energy is life, what we mean is um, humans can be thought of as machines. Um, and machines require um, inputs to operate. And um, ultimately, um, everything around you, your standard of living, the food that you get to eat, the shelter you live in and maintain, all of this is driven by primary energy. Um, and the absence of that energy would be quickly felt um, by society. And, and really, when you think about it deeply enough, and many others have, we're certainly not the first to to uh, coin the phrase, um, we've just uh, tried our best to popularize it. Um, ultimately, the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. Um, you know, the, unfortunately, but the second law of thermodynamics is 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 firm and unforgiving. Um, and the analogy we'd use is um, if you abandon your house and come back to it within a year, you'd be surprised how much uh, disorder has spontaneously appeared and how nature has taken it back over. Um, disorder is spontaneous. In order to beat back the forces of entropy, you need a constant inflow of energy just to maintain your current situation, let alone to improve it. And so by definition, um, your standard of living is defined by how much energy you get to waste. Um, uh, right angles do not exist uh, spontaneously in nature, but our houses are filled with them. Um, and so um, during times of of energy abundance, um, it is easy to forget this fundamental fact. And and in reality, what we're seeing right now in the Western society, at least, um, you know, Western Europe and and North America, and um, our allies in Asia, um, two two factors are occurring. One, um, the median citizen has never been more disconnected from the energy that powers their standard of living. You know, um, to most people listening, 
they've only ever lived in a world where the lights come on when you flick a switch and food arrives when you punch a few buttons on your phone um, and your car starts with the push of a button. Um, we have become accustomed to uh, these uh, excesses of modern life and it, it's, it's easy and forgivable to assume that such things just spontaneously appear and to forget that uh, these things must be made. Um, and, and secondly, um, for the two or three decades prior to the COVID lockdowns, the Western world was um, in a sea of relative energy access driven predominantly by the chill oil and gas revolution in the United States. Um, when we analyzed global markets, uh, the first question we asked our, we ask ourselves is, are we in a period of primary energy access or primary energy shortage? Um, since COVID, we are, uh, for a variety of reasons, which we're, I'm happy to describe, are, are in a period of, of energy shortage. And, and when you're in a period of energy shortage, um, strange things tend to happen uh, compared to what you're used to. And, and that's what's playing out today. And so um, the phrase energy is life is meant to remind people critical role of energy. Energy is not just another commodity, especially during times of shortages. Do you think, I mean, there's this very famous graph of historical development of GDP per capita. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, on very, very low levels, you know, less than, uh, than, than $10, $20. And then around the 1800s, it really starts to, to shoot up uh, along the, the y-axis. First in Europe, right, particularly Great Britain with the Industrial Revolution. And then as other nations catches up, their GDP per capita uh, develops in a similar fashion. Do you think that maybe even in the way we teach history, when we talk about the Industrial Revolution, wouldn't it be more accurate to talk about an energy revolution, that the, the Industrial Revolution allowed us to access the energy hidden in coal, hidden in oil, and that is actually what happened, right? You, you can run machinery that then allow you to produce more and allow people to live in greater abundance once you manage to access the energy that's hidden, particularly at the beginning, in fossil fuels. And, and maybe we should really on occasion, instead of using the term industrial revolution, use the term energy revolution to, to make this clearer. I sometimes wonder that, that maybe we, we don't really have an appreciation, particularly what you just described, about the important role that energy plays in our daily life. As you correctly said, we seem to think I turn on the light switch and the light goes on, but that the electricity behind needs to come from somewhere. I feel that maybe sometimes this is really underappreciated. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And in fact, um... There's a Bible on this topic that I think should be mandatory uh, reading in all high schools um, around the world. And, and it's a book written by one of the deepest thinkers in energy, Vaclav Smir. I'm sure you're familiar with his work and his book, um, Energy and Civilization, um, really is a story of history told through the lens of energy development in the exact way in which you just described. And um, so, for example, um, if you look through the sort of history of agriculture, um, it, it's very clear um, that when humans um, began to harness the power of coal and a steam steam engine and you know eventually diesel tractors, um, the share of the population who had to toil away in the farm fields uh, shrank uh, dramatically. The uh, invention of uh, chemical fertilizers, which are nothing more than solid embodiments of of energy directly. Um, allowed for an explosion in crop yields. Um, the pivoting away from burning wood into burning cold, uh, coal, uh, driven uh, in no small part because of a shortage of forests <laughs> in the UK um, uh, centuries ago, um, 
that has allowed you know nature to to reflourish. You know, I have a famous author and and um, and sort of pro fossil fuels uh, thinker Alex Epstein's uh, new book um, Fossil Future um, does make a, a compelling point, which is uh, critics of fossil fuels and um, people who are concerned about the environment, uh, and we would count ourselves amongst those who are concerned about the environment, um, never ascribe any positive value to the use of fossil fuels, despite the fact that 85% of our current energy consumption, and therefore 85% of our current standard of living, uh, is driven by our ability to access and harness the power embedded within fossil fuels. Um, now, if we're going to design an economy where we would like to uh, minimize the carbon emissions um, uh, that we that we um, release to the atmosphere. Um, we strongly argue, and Epstein also argues, and many other deeper thinkers in this space than us argue, that um, you must consider the impact on humans. And so um, it's an equation, CO2 emitted divided by the standard of living that you can create for the median human being on the planet. And if you ignore the denominator and focus only on the numerator, um, you're going to end up with a lot of dead people, um, and and we are opposed to that. Um, so that that's sort of the way we think about energy. Back Backlot Smeal's book, um, Energy and Civilization, is an absolute must read, um, and uh, we I've probably read it four times. Um, it's that good. Is uh, one thing that uh, I feel is also very often overlooked in the discussion, and, and maybe you just want to mention uh, one or two comments on this. Um, very often, and I have to admit, I, I'm fairly new myself to the field of energy and, and particularly its importance. It developed, as I think for many people on our show, an interest in this area. Um, you guys have been in this for a very long time, but with Ukraine war, with the crisis uh, of energy in Europe, but this has become quite interesting for everyone. And now everybody wants to be an expert on this issue. It's a little bit after nine. 11 everybody became interested in an expert on on islam at the middle east it's now everybody is an expert and interested in questions of of energy but what could you describe in in, in maybe a, a few sentences the difference between energy and electricity i think this is something that i think that very often eludes people and i, I kind of already as a preview because then i kind of want to bridge a little bit in a conversation about renewables because renewables uh for me strikes very often as they focus primarily on electricity, right? You use wind and solar to produce electricity, but you not necessarily can solve the problem of energy. And I think this is very often, even by, by very smart people, I think that this is often a neglected part, that electricity and energy is not the same thing. So maybe if you just can, could comment on this a little bit. Yes, the confusion arises from the fact that you need energy to create electricity. Um, and electricity is just a much more sort of highly ordered and refined um, um, version of energy that we have designed our societies around in order to harvest the maximum amount of gain uh, from this wonderful invention. Um, but in raw numbers, electricity is just one small slice of the energy pie. Um, and you know, um, just to keep numbers simple, um, the production and use of energy accounts for roughly 20% of our primary energy deployment um, on an annual basis. And the other 80% of our primary energy consumption is directed towards things like um, heating our homes, um, powering our vehicles, although there is, of course, gaining share of electrical powered vehicles, um, which we can talk about um, to any degree that you're interested in. Um, we also um, use energy in the creation of uh, chemicals and fertilizers and all of the materials, most of the materials um, that you find yourself surrounded with. 
um, energy is also used uh, to power uh, the heavy machinery needed to mine critical metals and minerals um, that that are key to the to the um, operation of our economy. And so, um, uh, what has happened in Europe, uh, which is a point we have made in several forms, is um, Electricity prices, say in Germany, may have doubled over historical averages, and that really didn't impact the economy all that much. Um, but what we're seeing now is an energy crisis. So the other 80%, the cost of those inputs uh, are skyrocketing um, for reasons we can get into. But um, it's one thing to have your electricity prices increase because you're introducing intermittent renewables like solar and wind. It's another thing to have the cheap natural gas that you have built your your entire value added manufacturing society around um, quadruple or five x in price um, because that is felt across the entire eighty percent of the spectrum of economic activities, not just the twenty percent um, that goes to electricity. I mean, let me ask you bluntly. Just can also maybe for listeners and viewers who are also very new to this field that and can of course also influenced by lots of things that they hear in the public discussion, also from politicians, right, that say net zero and, and the, the transformation, the Energiewende, as it sounds in German. Um, could you, hypothetically, could you run uh, an aluminum smelter or uh, you know, a steel furnace? Could you run such a, an energy-intensive industry on wind and solar, hypothetically? Well, I mean, if, if, if um, budgets were limitless, um, there's still the materials you need to get, right? And mm -hmm. so... Um, Let's, let's take the production of steel, for example. Um, steel is made by combining iron ore with uh, coking coal. Coking coal is a, um, a very high, uh, highly refined, um, low sulfur version of thermal coal, um, which is used to burn to make electricity. Um, you cannot make steel without iron ore and uh, coking coal. Now, could you, in theory, run these you know giant trucks on highly inefficient batteries and, and you know, Sure. Um, so I would say um, there's embedded in the materials a certain amount of of uh, energy that can never be sort of re recreated by electricity. Uh, but in theory, if you were willing to waste enough um, uh, time and energy, um, there's, there's you could do a lot with just renewables. Of course, you would have to have giant battery packs to make them baseload so that you have reliability because you can't run your, your factories uh, on the whims of the weather. Uh, but in theory, sure. But even then, um, there's so many materials that we would have to mine to get there. So this is the part that people don't get. You need to think about investing in energy like investing uh, with your money. There's a time T equals zero of energy that you have to deploy in order to create the machines that harness the energy. And then there's an energy payback period, which is not immediate. Um, and of course, these are very political numbers and and. Um, Lots of, uh, I would say, ideologues um, let their desires and beliefs influence the scientific measurements of such numbers. But regardless, uh, nobody would uh, argue that um, the creation of a solar panel, for example, is extremely energy intense, and that energy has to come from somewhere, and that energy only gets paid back over time. Um, and given the low capacity factor of solar, which is well known because you know the sun doesn't shine all day and sometimes it's cloudy. Um, it takes a fair amount of time for that energy to, to be paid back. And so um, certainly not on the time horizons that people are talking about today, but that energy has to come from somewhere, right? Um, and so uh, this, and by the way, um, it's a it's a not a very good thought experiment because there's just far superior ways to um, reduce our carbon footprint while simultaneously enabling humans to flourish. Uh, the answers are obvious. 
They require no technical inventions. Um, but our belief is that many sort of extreme environmentalists are actually Malthusians, closet Malthusians, who don't want humans to flourish and think that nature needs to be preserved for nature um, and not to be exploited in any way whatsoever by humans for human flourishing. So. No, I think this, this was a perfect answer, right? It was a hypothetical question because uh, over the last couple of months, kind of old interviews were unearthed again where the, the former German minister of the environment, Jürgen Trittin, said, I think it was in the early 2000s, that the energy transition entirely to renewables will cost the average German household not more than a scoop of ice cream per month. And I think that was like a euro 50 at the time. And uh, at the beginning of his chancellorship, uh, Olaf Scholz said, you know, we will run our heavy industry on renewables. And this is why I, I found exactly what you just explored so, so perfectly, so interesting that, yeah, you could hypothetically do it, but of course the promise, and this was always the implicit problem, right? They always talk about clean and cheap renewables. So even if one would go this, make this huge step and, and try to do it, it, you always have this intermittent step. So, you know, you would need huge batteries, all these kind of things. So probably your economy would cease to be competitive. This is a little bit also where I want to get that. So, so even if one then, you know, like with a laser focus pursues this ideological program, nothing takes place in isolation. And I think this brings us then also to the commodity markets, right? Nothing takes place in isolation. So you can do this, but then production of let's say aluminum or what you described before steel would become so expensive that yeah you can try it but nobody is going to produce steel in your country because they say you're insane like our energy prices would so be so high that every steel furnace from russia to china to india to the us uh would would be significantly cheaper than we are so this has been tried um and the empirical data is overwhelming everywhere it has been tried it has failed um, you, you can, you can say that it was honorable to try and fail, but you cannot deny the data. So Germany, California, Australia, pick your favorite, um, in places where, um, uh, nuclear power is de-emphasized, um, and fossil fuels are de-emphasized and renewables are rolled out. Um, the grid struggles, um, blackouts rise, um, costs skyrocket. Um, productivity goes down, um, and the economies are worse off for the experiment. Um, and so it's not now, of course, the greens in Germany would say, we just have to do more. You know, we need to double and triple down. We just have to walk through the Valley of death to get to the, uh, utopian society that we all want on the other side. This of course is fantasy. Um, and by the way, um, the most perverted aspect of all of this, of course, is, as I referred to earlier, there does exist a path. Um, the energy payback period on nuclear power is six weeks. Um, um, if, if you drive, um, if we had a nuclear renaissance, um, we could um, radically improve um, human standards of living while simultaneously decarbonizing first the electricity grid. Um, but we could also, the nice thing about nuclear power is it's got huge thermal potential as well, of course. And um, the whole point is you have this excess heat. Um, and so you could, in theory, um, use it to heat homes. Um, you could, uh, there's, there's no shortage. You could, you could literally, um, make, uh, ammonia, um, uh, carbon-free, uh, you would, um, produce your hydrogen, uh, add an electrolyzer next to your nuclear power plant that you would use to feed the Haber process. Yeah. Um, uh, this is all well-known. It requires no invention and it's relatively economical. Um, the issue of course is just political will and the fear campaign against nuclear power. We believe, uh, is proof 
of the uh, closet Malthusian nature of the most extreme environmentalists who, unfortunately, at least in some countries like Germany, seem to have a disproportionate grip on power. Um, and they will spill all manner of propaganda to cling to that power, uh, despite the overwhelming empirical evidence that their policies are foolhardy and lead to uh, economic hardships for their citizens. Uh, yeah, I think you're so right. right? It almost seems, if you allow me some some uh, hyperbolic statement, it seems that the, the anti-nuclear sentiment seems to be the most successful brainwashing operation, at least in Western societies. It's a, uh, and I, I see it among you know friends, families, even just you know starting the topic. Like there, there's immediate Chernobyl and 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 Fukushima and you know all the horrible accidents. And then when you go over them, I think in Fukushima, one person died of nuclear radiation. And, and, and Chernobyl is a, a very special case in itself, but even there, the official numbers are, I mean, every lost human life, as we talked about, is of course tragic, but the numbers are not as they're often conveyed in, in the public discourse, yes. right? And, and, and this is, and, and as you correctly just pointed out, it's, we have this miracle technology, but it's, it's not just the lack of political will not to use it, but it seems there is almost a counter movement against it. But you have written in your most recent Substack about uh, kind of some beginnings of hope. So that, that there seems to be, we'll see how long it's going to last, but there seems to be a slight shift, particularly in the question of nuclear. Even people that were vehemently against it a couple of years ago start to at least temporarily shift their view on this issue. Maybe if, if you would like, maybe you can uh, expand on this a little bit. Sure. Um, the latest piece we wrote is titled um, Green Shoots of Logic. That's it. Um, and, a, and a shoot is a sort of a, a small seedling that will eventually grow into something uh, more substantial, hopefully. Um, look, there is no path to decarbonization um, that uh, does not involve utter human suffering and destruction uh, absent the use of nuclear power. Uh, this is just undeniable. Um, and, and as more level-headed victims of the propaganda that you just described um, confront this reality, which is a role we've tried to play our own small part in, um, educating people. Um, others have much bigger platforms and have had much greater effect than we have, but uh, we pride ourselves on the small part that we are playing uh, in this drama. Um, we are now beginning to see, um, uh, especially in the US, uh, but in other places as well, um, uh, a realization that uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, the analogy we would use is um, sawing off the trunk of the tree to save the branches. Um, this is insane, of course. But uh, so in the piece, we profile um, Governor Gavin Newsom, who's a very uh, liberal uh, Democrat from California with uh, presidential ambitions, it must be said. Um, he um, reversed course and used his political power and um, and capabilities to um, reverse the scheduled closure of the last remaining nuclear power plant in California, Diablo Canyon, um, which provides 10% of, of the state's electricity and more critically, 20% of its baseload power. Um, there was no plans to replace that electricity. And uh, had that plant uh, continued on a shutdown path, California would have experienced a catastrophe. Um, similarly, in uh, Michigan, Governor uh, um, uh, her name escapes me now, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Gretchen Whitmer, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, has been working behind the scenes to reopen uh, a shuttered nuclear power plant, the Palisades uh, nuclear power plant, which uh, provided something like 8% of the state's electricity. Um, people are becoming a bit more level-headed over here in terms of um, natural gas, um, which is great. And then also we were very encouraged by um, the new prime minister uh, of the UK, Liz Truss, 
in her first speech. Uh, she's the first leader in sort of the European sphere that we have seen recognize that this is a crisis of supply. Um, and that uh, her, uh, you know, the UK has some special constraints, uh, inability to store natural gas being just one of them. Um, and she has committed that uh, this shall never happen to the UK again. Um, and so she's uh, going for an all of the above strategy, which is fine by us, uh, driven by nuclear power, um, natural gas uh, exploration. She has lifted the ban on fracking. We'll see if, if that actually uh, leads to production on any time horizon that matters. Uh, and also um, a, a renewed push for renewables, um, offshore wind and so on. Um, but um, absent nuclear power as an anchor, that strategy would not work. Um, and so we are beginning to see uh, in many locations, uh, with the notable exception of Germany, um, a renewed uh, interest in the laws of physics, um, uh, because the consequences of getting it wrong are so catastrophic. I mean, you have, uh, because you also just mentioned Germany, would it be fair to say, I mean, this is, this is again, a little bit maybe, maybe dramatic or, or hyperbolic, but would it be fair to say, I think in 2021, about 13% of electricity used in Germany came from their then still in operation, uh, six nuclear power plants. So do you think it's uh, a fair assessment to say by, by turning them off? apart from the question whether they can still provide enough energy, would it be fair to say that, that you impoverish your population? Because if there is less of it, of course, the price for it goes up. Wow. So you make this, so, so even if you, like there's still energy or still electricity to go around, but the, the hidden part of this strikes me that is not told to the people is, but it's going to be more expensive because no matter what it is then you, that your energy or your electricity is provided by, if you have less of it, it's going to be more expensive. So, so if you would run a campaign, a kind of pro-nuclear campaign, a pro-nuclear electricity campaign, do you think that would be a starting point to communicate to people to say that there actually is a price? So the promise that was made that closing down nuclear, quote unquote, replacing it with renewables will make it cheap, but it actually the exact opposite has happened, that it actually got more expensive. And if things get more expensive, you have to spend more electricity, you have less money for something else. So you get by definition poorer. Or do you think that would be an exaggeration? No, it's, I mean, the price of electricity is um, increased by a factor of 10 in Germany. Look, um, it's worse than that. Um, because of its um, obsessive sort of cult-like uh, focus on uh, removing nuclear power um, from its grid. Uh, Germany um, might trigger a rolling series of uh, protectionist policies in Europe this winter. Look, uh, in the piece we quote, um, you know, how how upset many of German Germany's neighbors are at the insistence on you know um, sawing off their own hand before entering a boxing match. Um, the, the in the piece we quote. Um, um, a member of the Swedish Greens saying, uh, let me read it here. Um, if Germany does not take any responsibility for its energy security, I will propose to our government that we cut the Baltic cable. Like why would Sweden send energy it could use to somebody who has so foolishly put themselves in a position to need it? Unfortunately, uh, we believe that um, not enough pain has yet been suffered in Germany to drive the political changes necessary that the other leaders we profiled in the piece are trying to get ahead of. So Germany seems hell-bent on running the full experiment, despite many, many warnings from very intelligent people that they're literally driving themselves into a brick wall at 60 miles an hour or 100 kilometers an hour for the benefit of your audience. Um, and and you know this is going to, uh, the, the, the amount of pain that will, will have to be suffered is tragically uh, much higher than it needed to be. But I guess that is the, the pain necessary to cut through the thicket of propaganda 
this giant pool of propaganda that so many Germans are swimming in. Do you think that, uh, I mean, this, I remember like over the last two months, there were like three instances where it looked as if they would make a U-turn on these three still remaining nuclear power plants, but in the end, they did not. I think now the, the new proposal was that uh, uh, one will close down by December and the other two will be kept in, however that's going to work, in reserve uh, until April. And only they will only use them in cases of emergencies. And I think you actually made this comment and said, well, isn't it an emergency already? So what, what exactly are they waiting for? Um, but even in in the in the in the in the in this this broader question of energy, particularly among German uh, in, in the German case, can you remain an economic powerhouse uh, if if you maneuver yourself in such an energy and electricity crisis? Is this feasible? Right? Because there is the argument. I looked at at uh, the most recent projections over the next year, and and they strike me as insane. But I can be wrong there, right? They say, well, you know, there is still slight economic growth in the year of 2022, and then supposedly next year it was by the by the economic uh, research team in Kiel. Usually they are very uh, well recognized and have a good reputation. I say next year it's going to shrink by maybe 0.7 percent, and then it's gonna gonna grow again at 2.4 percent, and then more starting in 2024, 2025. Do you think that that's too optimistic, as, as we do not see any particular <clears throat> rethinking, whether it's starting fracking in Germany, which would be possible, or maintaining and restarting and expanding nuclear energy. I mean, on which grounds, on which energy base do, do you think uh, could they project, make or make such optimistic projections? And, and I'm, not, I'm not asking you to criticize somebody else, sure. just from your feeling, do you think that is realistic or do you think that this is way too, op or at least slightly or significantly too optimistic? So let me first say, um, nobody would be happier to be proven wrong in this regard than us. Um, if a year from now, I come back on uh, Ralph's show, hat in hand, apologizing because it turned out uh, our analysis was too alarmist, um, I would be very happy with that outcome um, because that would mean there would be less suffering um, and that uh, Putin would have been neutered and uh, the German uh, resilience and uh, value-added economy has rebounded, and my several hundred German friends will be in a better shape than I fear they might be. Um, so um, I want to be wrong. Um, those numbers don't jive with the early signs that we're seeing. German PPI, 37%, you know, for a, a society who is supposed to be uh, so fearful of hyperinflation and so proud of the hardness of its money, um, I don't know how you pass on 37% um, pr producer price index increases year over year, uh, and it doesn't manifest itself in double-digit inflation in the next two to three months. Um, you know, the, the people who will be hit the hardest are the ones who can least afford it. And of course, um, they will be bailed out, which will only um, postpone the much-needed uh, rationalization and make that rationalization highly inefficient. Um, you know, uh, it is our belief that uh, Germany and Western Europe are entering the winter of 2022-2023 with less molecules than they need. Um, and therefore, those molecules will need to be rationed. And they are both um, putting off uh, the amount of demand destruction that will be needed to match supply and um, obfuscating the market signals needed to do so efficiently by uh, attacking suppliers with windfall profit tax threats um, and uh, handing out stimulus checks to those who admittedly need it. But that, of course, only makes uh, demand destruction slower, which means you run out of the, the limited molecules you have faster. Um, so you're seeing basically uh, deindustrialization um, on a massive scale, potentially. So uh, you can't run a zinc smelter 
um, uh, in Europe today. You can, and of course, um, um, you make silver from zinc smelters uh, in many cases, and you need silver to make your solar panels. Um, and so all these sort of cascading effects that people don't think about because of the interconnected nature of our economy, you know, the shutdown of, of fertilizer plants uh, in the region um, because the fertilizer is driven by natural gas. Um, these have to manifest itself in the economic numbers. Um, I will say um, in the West, um, we have seen a pattern of uh, deep massaging of economic numbers for political purposes, and we are finding them less and less reliable and uh, less uh, consistent with the direct worldview uh, that we can see with our own eyes. You termed a very interesting uh, terminology. I think that's also worthwhile maybe expanding a little bit on. Uh, I think you, you you also jokingly trademarked it. And that's the, the, the concept of anti-logic, uh, particularly, I think, in your judgment regarding uh, European policies in the area of energy and, and elsewhere. Could you maybe just uh, describe a little bit to our viewers and listeners what uh, the term anti-logic describes? Yeah, I would say that the the use of the trademark is a joke. Of course, um, it's meant to be a bit uh, cheeky, as we would say. Um, uh, over here. Maybe, maybe if allow me, just kind of to yeah. throw this in real quickly. One of the things that makes you Substack uh, so enjoyable to read it's uh, valuable information, very detailed information, but it's always presented in a very accessible. Uh, so it's fun to read. It's and that makes it also so it's, it's not also for our listeners and viewers. But if you consider, first of all, check out the stuff that's available for free, but also if you consider getting a subscription, it's really written in a way that's 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 uh, it's it's lighthearted occasionally on a but on a very serious topic. As you said, it's written not not by doom mongers, but by people who see the abyss but want to avoid it as you said before i think that's always important to mention so so yeah. and you you again i like very much you have these terms like the 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 the, the anti-logic so sorry to interrupt you but no just, no so this is an important thing you know we we have a brand ambition um at doomberg um which is that um when our ideal customers receive our email um the gut feeling we induce in them is oh i get to read that and the way we try to induce that gut feeling is um, by following uh, three brand pillars. Um, one, um, we shall be uh, funny without being silly. Yeah. Um, two, we shall um, be uh, provocative uh, without being polarizing. Um, and three, uh, we shall teach uh, without being self-indulgent. And so um, each of our pieces are written and edited and um, inspected um, through that um, th those brand pillars uh, and uh, to the extent that we have achieved um, our brand vision um, in our ideal clients, uh, I think this is uh, a good explanation for why the Substack has been successful. So back to anti-logic. Um, anti-logic was a humorous phrase that we uh, that we apply, uh, and, the, and, and the way we, we call Doomberg's law of anti-logic is the current slate of Western leaders can be counted on to make the worst possible decision uh, as it pertains to energy uh, at every given opportunity. And, and in fact, um, if you are modeling um, the next two, three, four, five months, um, anti-logic explains a lot of, <laughs> a lot better um, the decision making that we're seeing uh, as opposed to logic. And so, um, again, uh, the latest piece is sort of an acknowledgement that um, we're beginning to perhaps see what we call the peak stupidity um, in energy. We may be past the point of peak stupidity and, and coming back down to the other side of sanity, um, but not in Germany, uh, not yet. And so, uh, anti-logic reigns uh, in Germany. And um, you know the the current slate of leaders seem to be hell bent on going down with the ship, and uh, we wish them well. I hope they can swim. I mean, it's it's a uh, people always tend to say there is no continuity in history, but if you look at Germany, uh, very often it seems like there is this this uh, 
self-destructive strain within uh, within German political decision making as a as a somewhat of a historical constant. Um, talking of this, of course, one topic that uh, you have discussed a lot, you've also discussed it, which I also highly recommend, and people can find it if they follow you on, on Twitter, which uh, also you find under, under Doomberg. Uh, you joined a couple of Twitter spaces where I think there were very, very interesting uh, discussions, particularly uh, regarding the matter of natural gas. Uh, and sanctions against Russia, and and, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. So correct me immediately if I represent uh, if I misrepresent your position. But uh, you seem from the beginning, and I would say justifiably so, been more skeptical, particularly uh, talking about sanctions in the area of resources. Uh, so so also again, it's very clear to our listeners not to to misinterpret anything. So it's not that you are are against sanctions per se, but I think you described it quite nicely, and that the sanctions as they were implemented. It, kind of demonstrated, uh, and, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, it, it demonstrated uh, a lack of knowledge, particularly of the commodities market, an area where you have a lot of experience. So maybe you could explain a little bit what your, your critique is, especially when it came to sanctions uh, with natural gas, with oil, uh, with coal, and these very energy intensive resources. So anybody who has actually worked in the commodity sector, um, as in ran a business, led teams, um, <clears throat> so spent time in industry and understands how prices set and how commodities flow, um, has a deep and intuitive understanding of the following, which is counterintuitive to people who have not. And it seems like the designers of the sanctions um, were, were woefully uneducated as it, as it pertained to um, the structure of the sanctions uh, as measured against their desired outcome. So what is the desired outcome? The desired outcome is for Putin um, to have less revenue from his um, energy resources. And we are in full support of this. And again, um, as we've said many times, pointing out the flaws in our war strategy does not make us unpatriotic. Um, we point them out in an effort to correct them so that we could more rapidly win the war and get back to peace. Um, so what is the flaw? Uh, in commodities, um, especially life-critical commodities like energy, and especially during times of shortages, um, the price elasticity of demand overwhelms you. And so what does this mean? Um, let's just take some round numbers. Um, you cannot, if, if you were able to stop Putin's energy from getting to the market, um, he would still make more money from the remaining energy he could sell to the countries that aren't sanctioning him. And, and this is counterintuitive. You cannot win a sanctions war by attacking um, uh, volume, you must attack price. And, and, and so imagine uh, for round numbers that Putin exports 10 million barrels a day of oil. Um, and imagine we were able to use a naval blockade, uh, which of course is an act of war, but um, to take 5 million barrels of his oil off the market. Um, he would still be selling 5 million barrels um, to friendly countries, and there are plenty of them. Um, and the price of oil would weigh more than double. <laughs> this is the part that people don't understand. And so um, if we attack his supply, um, the price will overwhelm um, the uh, effects of our attack on supply such that um, he will end up making more money. Um, and so if you want to rob Putin of the funds that he is using to fund his war machine, the only way to do it, unless, um, and, and by the way, even if you could completely eliminate his energy from the markets, that would be a human catastrophe of epic proportions. A billion people would starve. You shouldn't want that. You should want him to flood the world with his energy, and we should flood the world with his energy and trigger a price collapse because he can't produce anymore 
um, but we can. And so um, oil famously traded at minus $37 a barrel. Um, if you hold Putin's production flat at 10 million barrels a day, and the price of oil goes to $20 from 120, you have cut his revenue by 85%. Um, if you cut 2 million of his barrels off the market and the price of oil doubles, you have increased his revenue by 60%. Um, it, we were very early and very loud, and the data is, is, is very clear. Um, even cutting off natural gas to Europe, he is making more money on the gas he is selling. Um, it, it's just the price of, here's a great example. Um, when the Freeport LNG export terminal in the U.S. exploded, that took 20% um, of U.S. LNG exports off the market. Um, the price of natural gas in Europe doubled almost immediately. Yeah. <laughs> it's very small, it's very tight. The elasticity of demand of these materials is shocking to people who don't have any experience. And then when, you, when you're running a P&L, uh, a business in commodities, you know that you make all your money in one year over an eight-year cycle. And in that one year, you're just printing cash. And that cash spreads itself across all the other years enough to keep you in business. Um, you know, it doesn't take much incremental supply to radically reduce the price. So, and and one of the positive things, at least in regards to uh, hurting Putin, that the U.S. has done is, of course, releasing oil from its strategic reserve to flood the market with an extra million barrels a day. If releasing oil from our strategic petroleum reserve hurts Putin, how much more would producing more hurt him? This is the logic, right? Um, and so, if we hadn't been releasing um, oil from the strategic reserves, oil would still be well above $100 a barrel, uh, in our view. Um, and so that's the logic, produce more, flood the market with energy. You know, before the first Gulf War, um, you know, the U.S. diplomats went around the world to all the oil producing regions and um, strong armed them into producing more so that we could offset the loss of Saddam Hussein's uh, oil from the market for the temporary period that it was taken off. We did none of that here. In fact, we're doing the opposite. We're attacking supply, both Putin's and our own, and then scratching our head at the resulting uh, increase in revenue that Putin is enjoying. And so um, the, it's very clear that uh, you cannot, these sanctions were, were almost designed to fail. Uh, Putin is, is, you know, whatever is happening on the battlefield, and you'll notice, by the way, that we never write about or tweet about what's happening militarily because we know nothing about it. Yeah. But this doesn't seem to stop people who know nothing about energy uh, from commenting on what we should do around the sanctions, you know, um, militarily, I think, you know, my, my superficial view is that this was an extreme blunder on Putin's part. And in, and undoubtedly in the medium to long term, um, uh, if he remains in power, it will do untold damage to um, Russian energy. But in the short term, we need to be flooding the world with, with energy, not shutting down nuclear power plants and attacking new fossil fuel development, but doing the opposite. Um, because um, by, by, engaging in the erroneous strategy around sanctions. We have emboldened him and, and made this war go on longer than it could have or should have. Do you think, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's December 5th, and, and then a couple of months later, um, uh, European sanctions will hit particularly the, the oil sector. I think there's a, a complete stop of importing oil from Russia and, and then also later on refined products, which I think is going to be very interesting because many German companies, uh, where they could switch from, from gas to diesel. So I'm curious how this is going to work out. But do you think that this, this will kind of have a similar effect that, again, that the goal is to weaken the Russian economy me, but ultimately they they only going to drive up the price and the Russians will find other other buyers or of course or would, would you see differently in that respect? of course they will find other buyers the world needs his energy we should want him to find buyers the world cannot persist without Russia's energy this is just a fact um, if we if we blew up every oil well in Russia and capped every natural gas well um, the world would fall into a calamitous depression that would make the 1930s look mild um, he has that leverage. We gave it to him. 
it is okay to recognize reality when formulating your war strategy. You know, we we um, we opened a, a piece on Europe. Uh, let me just pull it up as I'm talking to you. Um, with a fake quote, you know, from uh, Sun Tzu, uh, the famous art of war. And the fake quote that we created as part of the humor was, um, in times of war, hand all the leverage to your enemy, then complain loudly when they use it. I mean, we, we gave Putin all of this leverage. It's time to admit it. And it's time to implement sane policies that have the desired outcome. If you want to minimize Putin's revenue, sanctioning his volume will backfire, period. To the, the only option would be as a chance, right? It's it's to increase it, right? Whether yes. it's 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 and we, and maybe just to add on to this, we could correct uh, even that one argument is very often that well, it takes time. That's like as true in the European case. You probably could not start fracking tomorrow, but let's talk about the US maybe for a second, right? I think the US could very easily expand their energy production again, maybe not tomorrow, but I think there we're talking about weeks, not not months or years. Just the political value of signaling support for the industry would knock $20 a barrel off the price of oil. There's an enormous risk premium embedded in the market today because people do not trust that the existing slate of leaders are capable of making the correct decision. And so, as we argued many months ago on, on Grant Williams' podcast, um, uh, or a podcast that we uh, we co-host with him called This Week in Doom, mm -hmm. um, the, the power of Joe Biden holding a press conference with all of the U.S. CEOs of oil and gas industries proclaiming that he will work to reduce every regulatory barrier, uh, eliminate nuisance lawsuits, provide federal funding to um, create as much natural gas and to flood the field with energy, that would knock $25 a barrel off the price and would um, hurt Putin's revenue. Uh, we're doing none of those things. Um, and so it, it's frustrating, of course. Um, and and these are the, this is not speculation on our part. This is knowledge derived from experience. Um, and 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 by highlighting that this won't work, uh, we're trying to do our best to quicken an end to the war. Um, and so, but it is what it is. And it, it's there are many people who see it. There are some members of the U.S. government who have reached out to us, and and staff members of powerful politicians who read Doomberg. And so, uh, to the extent that we can influence policy, we're trying. Um, but it is what it is. You sort of just have to live with it at some point. That um, you know, we we're a, a, a democratic society that makes lots of mistakes. I mean, do you, if, if I if I might, can invite you for a second to speculate. I mean, I know this is a difficult topic. Do you think it's it's really an an ideological? I would even say almost quasi-religious phenomenon that is just this deeply, you know, on on an almost moral emotional level ingrained sense or gut feeling among many, you know opinion leaders, politicians, that fossil fuels are just bad. And no matter what happens, right, we we have to make sure to use as little, to to explore as little, to produce as little. And that what you just described, that even in the face of, of a military conflict, of war, they just cannot get over it. It's, it's like, it's as somebody would say that, you know, you, uh, as I guess, uh, religious people, even in hard times would not be willing to give up their religion. Uh, that is a similar thing. Or I sometimes like the comparison, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, right? You know, so even if, if a blood transfusion and I, I no, no, no negative, nothing against Jehovah's Witnesses, but as a comparison, right? That even if a blood transfusion could rescue them, they, they say, no, they can't because their religion doesn't allow them to. And is it in a similar way, the way how the West behaves towards nuclear and, and fossil fuels that it's there it could be explored. I mean, I think a good example is also in, in Europe, right? There's in uh, there's at least there are different numbers, but Germany supposedly have, would have between 10 and 20 years uh, of, of natural gas under its very own soil. But there is just this quasi-religious 
sentiment that does not make it possible, even if, if the, the negative consequences and the potential stares one in the face? Or, or do you think it's something else? I remember you've also been in another podcast that was a short conversation, whether it's you know the World Economic Forum and whether it's a kind of a conspiracy. But I wonder, maybe it's more straightforward because it, it's not a, a deep conspiracy. It's just people believe certain things. And the stronger they believe them, the harder it is for them to give them up. And unfortunately now, one of those beliefs has really negative effects, but it's also one they, they hold very dearly. And that's why it's hard to, to give it up. It, I mean, I, yeah. I, I tried to phrase it <laughs> as a question, but I, I you yeah, know what I, I mean. Yeah, I think you're mostly right. And to be, to be clear, um, much to the frustration of some of our readers, we have not, um, we refuse to believe that this is some form of uh, WF conspiracy. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, we, we, let's say the way we phrase it is um, there's insufficient evidence to reject an all hypothesis that incompetence explains most of this. Um, and uh, we are going to go with the incompetence hypothesis as long as we can, because we don't want to live in a world, frankly, it's kind of a Pascal's wager. Uh, we do not want to live in a world where our leaders are proactively trying to kill us. <laughs> and so um, it's it's more comforting to assume um, that it's incompetence um, and the evidence uh, would support it. Um, and I think in Green Shoots of Logic, um, you see that, uh, in fact, Gavin Newsom is not trying to wreck his economy. He just didn't know. And uh, he was able to walk back uh, from from the edge, perhaps driven by his almost certainly driven by his future political ambitions, which is fine. That's how politics is supposed to work. Um, and so. Um, you know, I, I do think that it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. And um, it's hard to uh, walk back from the branch when you have uh, invested so much of your political um, resources into a, an erroneous belief, but physics will not be denied. Um, and so one way or the other, those beliefs need to change um, because uh, there's a limit to how much suffering um, people will uh, put up with. And as we have said many times, um, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. And uh, we will see political um, upheaval. We will see regime change, both peaceful and violent. And um, this is rather unfortunate and totally avoidable. This is incredibly insightful, but I try to limit myself to uh, two final questions, if I may. One is, um, and this is a conversation you also had in a couple of the Twitter spaces you participated, because everybody is very anxious in Europe about the coming winter. And also based on what we said a couple of minutes ago, so if if you would have to to place your, your predictions or your estimation between two poles, right? One, that it's all not going to be as bad as the worst uh, predictions might make us believe. And the other one, it actually is going to be pretty bad, potentially including significant rationing uh, and rolling blackouts. Uh, and these uh, th these measures to preserve energy. Can on, on this on this spectrum at the moment, right? What do you with the information we have at this point in time, right? Things can change in the next couple of days or weeks. What is your estimation? Have you become more more sanguine or or more optimistic in the last couple of days regarding the approaching winter, particularly in Central Europe? So this is a, one of the frustrating aspects of this. Of course, is we have been writing about this and warning about this for a very long time since the very beginning of Doomberg. Um, and yet the goalposts are moving, you know, what is considered a catastrophe? We would argue that uh, baseload uh, electricity prices increasing by a factor of 10, uh, the catastrophe is here. Um, the, all that remains is to decide uh, who feels how much pain. Um, now, do I think that um, uh, the vast majority of the German population will survive to see spring? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I, I would argue that the catastrophe is here and the pain will be felt. And um, if the economy contracts five, six, seven percent um, GDP because you have to reduce your energy use by fifteen or twenty percent uh, via forced rationing and 
various companies are forced to close down. You know, this is just at the very beginning of the supply chain and the cracking of the whip will make its way downstream. And you will see automotive factories shutting down and aluminum smelters shutting down and all manner of small businesses with five and six fold increases in their electricity bills, unable to continue to operate. Um, if we see 5% economic contraction in, in Europe, would that qualify as a catastrophe? I think it would. Yes. Um, and so I, I, we are in the, um, we have come to grips with the fact that it's probably too late to make meaningful change to the arc of what is about to transpire. I think uh, many in Western Europe are in for a significant surprise, which has to either manifest itself in, um, well, it, it, the path function doesn't matter. It will manifest itself in decreased standards of living, which to many will be unacceptable. And we do fear a significant rightward tilt um, in, in European politics. And it will manifest in either you know, the direct um, poverty of people or the indirect poverty uh, via uh, much elevated inflation. You know, you, you're squeezing a balloon here. It has to show up somewhere. Um, no, but exactly, exactly what you just said. This is what some sometimes I have to admit, frankly, it sometimes bothers me when I, I, I read um, statements by other economists, exactly what you said. Um, I think one good way to measure the quote-unquote catastrophe is what will be its political repercussions. And you're correct that the likelihood that, that Germans will, for example, will will you know die over the winter, hopefully, right, is, is very low. But what if the political system implodes, right? If you have a, a Weimar-like scenario due to these energy prices, and who then knows what five, six, seven, eight, ten years down the road is going to happen? Because can you, in your opinion, do you think, can you just turn off uh, these these heavy industries and then turn them on again? I mean, no. I think this is a little bit the, the imagination to say, oh, we just, this is what the, the German, what uh, Vice Chancellor Habeck said in a recent interview, he said, no, no, the companies are not insolvent. They just stopped producing and they might have to do so for a longer <laughs> period of time. But yeah. can you just like a, like a car engine turn turn on and off uh, an aluminum smelter, right? A, a, a steel production, or is it just that these companies either close down for good or move somewhere else? And you also mentioned, what about smaller companies? And the idea you just rescue them with bailouts, does this not also mean that this is kind of, I'm sorry, there's many questions in one, sure. but this is something I've been wondering about. If to quote Doomberg, there are only you know, a limited number of molecules to go around. So even if you give people more money, um, if the supply is limited, you're just gonna drive up the price. So to say, oh, the the the, the steel furnace needs, you know, uh, energy prices are tenfold. We give them now, you know, a huge bailout. Yeah, but there's still not more energy. Somewhere the energy must come from. So so do you think that 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 if the now I got now I got the question right? I'm sorry. If this winter is over, right? Um, do you think we can continue on the path on which we are, or 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 does change still have to happen, even if the war in Ukraine would supposedly be over tomorrow? I think I think I guess that's my question. Right? Some are we going to survive this winter, but what fo what follows then? Is it going to be the beginning of the deindustrialization of parts of Europe, or do we see potentially? I guess it's potentially, or or, or is it just going to go back to how it was five years ago? So a lot embedded there, but let me Sorry. <laughs> attack the first, the heart of the question first. Uh, look, if you shut down uh, aluminum smelter, it's not like the factory explodes and you can't, you know, turn it back on if conditions arise. Um, it's hard to imagine a scenario where, having shut it down, the the energy conditions in Europe change so much so that um, it becomes compelling economically to restart them. Um, but at a minimum, 
it radically discourages future investment. Um, and you know, economic growth requires a continuous uh, investment in, in new productive capacity along with increases in productivity. Um, and so um, many of these factories will not come back on um, much in the same way that um, when China took over you know, the production of polysilicon, um, all the factories that closed in the Western world have not been turned back on despite the recent uh, energy advantages that those areas, um, uh, especially the US, for example, enjoy. Why? Well, you have more than just energy. You have expertise and people move on and they find other jobs or they, they immigrate or, you know, like um, the, there's a, a, a successfully operating factory is a sort of a, a perfectly tuned collection of many resources that is optimized for uh, profitably making the critical materials uh, that come out of them. Um, but the real important factor here, and this is something that, that we give full credit to Luke Roman, um, Forest for the Trees, uh, one of our good friends and a, and a great and a, uh, analyst in his own right. Um, you know, um, energy today is mostly settled in dollars. And, um, and so um, the US, in fact, can print energy because it could print dollars and then go buy energy. Uh, the, the Europeans cannot do this. Um, and so uh, the British cannot do this, uh, which is why you're seeing the currencies um, weaken against the US dollar because before they can go procure the molecules, they have to go and procure dollars uh, to settle. Um, and um, Luke's point is, if we wake up tomorrow and there's peace with Russia, uh, imagine you know Putin has been overthrown and, a, and by some miracle, a, a Western-friendly, um, acceptable leader takes over and uh, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 start flowing and um, uh, Russia agrees to settle their um, their energy trades in euros, uh, that would be a radical improvement for Europe. And um, you could imagine um, all, all of these factories um, that have been shut down restarting. Um, and then you might even get some investment um, uh, into Europe after that. Uh, but as it stands now, uh, that's an awful lot of ifs. <laughs> so I, you know, the first part of your question, um, you can successfully mothball a factory in a way that if conditions change, uh, you could turn it back on. So it's not like um, you're breaking a machine that can never be repaired. Uh, but there are some constraints beyond energy and money, and those involve humans. Uh, and so that's sort of the, 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 a simple answer as I can give you to a complex question. No, it is. It is. You mentioned this also, just as a, as a, as a quick follow-up, you mentioned this also in another interview, which I found very enlightening, where I said we should not forget that, that uh, there is also potentially in the West, given the attitude we had towards the fossil fuel industry and the nuclear industry, uh, a lack of expertise, right? Uh, people don't study it at universities, people don't become engineers in those fields, but uh, they might do so in Saudi Arabia, they might do so in Russia, right? They might do so in China. I think one of the things that you have been highly critical of, and I think justifiably so, uh, is this idea that only we in the West know how to access uh, resources that are, you know, deep underground or in, in, in difficult accessible areas, but this knowledge is, is spreading and others are increasingly capable of doing this as well. Yes, I call this a bit of um, Western techno arrogance. And, um, you know, in my corporate career, I, I manage teams um, all over the world. And as I said, I believe on the Twitter spaces that you're, you're probably referring to with uh, Marco Popich and, and Luke Roman hosted by, by Grant Williams, um, which by the way, has been listened to incredibly um, Almost a quarter million times. Uh, it's a fantastic. It's fantastic. Um, uh, it's it's. I can only you know recommend it to everybody who's listening and seeing this. This is uh, worth every minute of the two hours. But uh, I have visited um, global universities uh, as part of my duties uh, in my old life, and um, the IIT universities in India, and you know, uh, I remember um, giving a lecture at Fudan University in Shanghai and um, trying to recruit the best and brightest from these international schools. Um, 
and visiting the headquarters, of course, of Saudi Arabia, you, uh, of, of Saudi Aramco, sorry, um, you find that these companies like Sinopec and Saudi Aramco and Reliance Industries in, in India, um, not only do, do they have thousands and thousands and thousands of engineers to choose from um, every year, churning them out at a much higher rate at just the same quality um, they were producing in the West. Um, in China's case, if they don't invent the technology, they just steal it. And so they have it. Um, this is not very complex. Um, and, and I think um, the, the sort of, again, this goes back to um, un underestimating your enemy here, right? I mean, uh, Russia, in partnership with Saudi Arabia and China and India and Brazil, um, is more than capable of getting most of what it previously um, acquired from the West. And so we have this uh, belief in the West that um, Russian economy is on the verge of collapse and blah, blah, blah. And again, this is different than military. I'm just speaking sort of raw international trade. Yeah. Um, it's, it's naive to think that Saudi Aramco isn't one of the most technically advanced companies on the planet. They're, they're producing $100 billion in profit uh, a quarter. What are, what are they doing with that money? They're developing technology. And they didn't just show up and stick a straw on the ground and have oil come out. Um, and, and same thing with, uh, with the, um, the chemical industry in China. All of these JVs, the BSF's JV um, um, uh, in China, is, is all of that technology is there. If you don't think that Chinese engineers are uh, studying every single aspect of, of the highest of the high-end technologies that the Germans are, are um, quote-unquote, uh, collaborating with them on, um, you're foolish. Of course they have this technology. They have the students. Now, if you, you, it, you could only assume that the West is a monopoly on engineering if you've never visited a proper university uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, and this is a dangerously naive assumption. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just it's poor, poor strategy to assume that your opponent is weak. When in fact um, they are potentially even stronger than you. Like how many student, how many kids these days in in the U.S. or in Canada or or in in the U.K. or Austria or Germany are waking up in the morning and saying, "I want to be a petroleum engineer." None. Yeah. They want to be a, a an influencer on YouTube uh, or on Instagram. Uh, this is not the case in China. I can assure you. This is not the case in India. The competition to get into IIT uh, in India is profound. Uh, the competition to get into the elite schools um, uh, in China is profound. Um, the very best of the best are going into um, engineering and science. And uh, we in the West, of course, are uh, chasing the next Silicon Valley unicorn, hoping to uh, cheat our way into access riches. And this is a shame. Um, and uh, this is regrettable. But this is reality. I mean, I find this this was a very important, a very also future looking way to end our conversation, which I'm very sad about. This is a uh, uh, talking to you is just as enlightening as your Substack, which once again, I can not recommend enough it's a it's a fantastic read also your your twitter feed it's highly informative it's one of the first things i do every morning is uh checking out what's going on uh over at doomberg because again it's it's always enlightening and it always gives me at least that's what i feel an edge in conversations on these issues and uh the particular the way you represent it it's a it's a highly complex very difficult topic but luckily enough you guys and you have engaged so thoroughly with it that you have the capacity and capability to present it in a way that even for those who do not have that education can understand it. So you really make a great contribution in this way, not just to the public debate, but I would say also to the general level of education uh, in this field. Uh, I cannot thank you enough, uh, maybe with one thing. I hope that we can do this again. I'm sure that the matter of energy will not leave us alone for the time to come. And maybe next year we can actually talk about an accomplished nuclear renaissance, if not if not the beginning of fracking in Europe, one is allowed to dream. And again, thank you so much for coming on and I'm looking forward to talking to you again. 
Ralph, it was really great. I'm happy to come back anytime you'll have us and appreciate the plug. Um, Doomberg.substack.com. And then on Twitter, we're actually at Doomberg T. Um, T is in team. Uh, somebody is squatting on um, at Doomberg. And so we have to make sure that you add a T to the yes. end. And, and we have many impostures. So make sure to click and see um, that we're the account with the big following and not um, not some imposture trying to run a scam. That's just an unfortunate aspect of Twitter, as I'm sure you know. Um, but yeah, at Doomberg T on Twitter and Doomberg.substack.com. Uh, appreciated the time and, and uh, I'm looking forward to coming back. Thank you so much. Have a great day.